0: I figured we we might be a little sparse this morning with the time change, but I appreciate you all being here. So we are in Luke nineteen. Um, we'll pick up where we left off last week, but uh, let, me, let me pray for our time, and we'll uh, we'll jump into this. Father, thank you for uh, the truth of your word that it um, you've given it to us to enlighten us to glorify you, and Father, it, the primary purpose of your word is to reveal the gospel, and I, I pray that as we study this, you would reveal truth that would change us now and uh, glorify you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So at the end of last week, or the primary lesson from last week was on, a lot of it was on the 10 minas that he gave to those servants. And at the end of that, in verse 27, he said, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So he made a really strong statement at the end of that parable of what would happen to those who who opposed him. And... um so that's kind of the backdrop of where we're at now. And he's, gonna, he's, he's continuing to journey here. So, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So he was in Jericho when he had, had done these statements. So um, how would you describe the journey from Jericho to Jerusalem? Sharon, did y'all go to Jericho? Uh, yes. yes. So, what was it like going from Jericho to Jerusalem? I'm giving you a little hint. It's not very far. It's not real far, <laughs> but it's up. Okay. We'll it's up in elevation. So, um, here's a little map. It's it's 15 or 20 miles, depending on you know, what the road is like, what path you took. Um, I, I tried to let Google figure out, okay, what, what, map should, or what route should I follow? And it had me going some really strange route because of, um, I guess it's roads are closed or I don't know what it was. Um, but it's like 3,000 to 3,500 feet of elevation change. So it's a pretty good climb. Um, so that explains just going up to Jerusalem. Well, it, it's going up in elevation. Um, it would be a single day's walk. It, it's a pretty good walk. I mean, you typically can do two or three miles in an hour. So this is, you know, five or six hour walk. It's not too bad. Um, Jesus knows what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. So this is this is a, not a real straightforward journey for him. He knows that he's going to face the cross in Jerusalem. That's where he's headed. Okay, so I've got the rabbit symbol up there. I'm chasing a little bit of a rabbit trail here. So Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, verse 25 says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks... It shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So rather than ask questions, I thought, well, I need to just explain what this is. So the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem is most likely the decree that was given by Artaxerxes in Nehemiah 2. It was issued in in 444 B.C. Um, He gave the command to, okay, you can go back and rebuild the temple and and the walls in Jerusalem. And so that's what was going on. So that's the going out of the word. Um, The next thing in here is, it says there's going to be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So, In prophetic terms, this is 69 weeks of years. So the weeks are seven-year periods is is the way the prophetic term goes. So this would be 483 years. Now, a prophetic week in, in Jewish prophecy is 360 days. So that leads you to... This March 30th of A.D. 33 is is how many days that would lead to. Now this is, by the way, this is one interpretation of this. There are several different ways that commentators will interpret it. But each one of them leads to Jesus fulfilling this prophecy when he enters Jerusalem. On Palm Sunday, it's a—he's—he's he's the prince that's going in to Jerusalem. So, I thought that was interesting. I don't know. Hopefully, I didn't bore you too much with it. So, going back to Luke 19, he says, "But when he drew near to Bethage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet." He sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So, what's the instructions he's given here? Go get me an animal, right? Go get me this this colt, So He's um, he's approaching Bethage and Bethany. They're south of Jerusalem, a couple of miles um, near the Mount Mount Olivet, and um, he wants them to fetch this donkey for him. He said it's it's. You know, and if, if somebody asks, if the owner asks, tell him the Lord has need of it. So, what's the significance of Bethage and Bethany? I give you a hint: who lived there? Lazarus. Yeah, Lazarus and Martha and Mary, right? In fact. He commonly stayed there. And the other, other Gospels tell us that in this, the Passion Week here, he stayed in, with Martha and Mary. So it's a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem. Um, from John's account, we know that he stayed there. Why would a donkey be important? Sorry. It yeah, it does fulfill prophecy. Um, Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9.9 9 states, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well then, what else does this tell us? This this scene. Yeah, so it's really a kingly thing, yes. and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that in just a second. Um, this whole scene reveals his divine nature, his character, that he understood what was going to be seen, and you're going to find this and this, and if you're asked this. And so everything, he knew what was going to happen. Um, So those who were sent away, those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. So these things turned out exactly the way Jesus said, right? These two disciples found everything the way he said it. They were asked like he thought he would be, and and they replied everything the way Jesus told them. Jesus knew exactly what the events were that were going to occur. Jesus knew exactly the event that were going to occur that entire week. He knew the suffering that he was going to go through. He knew the mistreatment that he was going to experience. He knew what the cross held for him. And he continued to go forward toward it. Um, And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. So he probably had walked. There's no record that he had um, ridden any animal into Jerusalem before. So it's significant that he's riding a colt now. Yeah, everybody understood what is that meant as he came in to be coronated. But the coronate yeah. that he went to receive in Jerusalem this time is different than what he came in second coming as the king of kings and glory. Because yeah, that yeah. It, it will be different, right. But this is a significant change. It it fulfills the prophecy of Zechariah 9 that we've talked about, but it shows a change in Jesus' purpose. See, previously when he came into Jerusalem, it was primarily to worship. He was coming to the temple to worship his father and to teach and, and whatnot, but now he's approaching the temple as the king and high priest, so he's writing in on, on an animal to show a different status that he has now, now, a donkey would be a symbol of peace, whereas a horse is is a symbol of of military or, or even war, so so that that 's the reason for a donkey versus a horse. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So what, what's the scene as he rides into Jerusalem? Yeah, I, I mean, this is a joyful celebration. I, you know, I think of like a, this is like the victory parade that sports teams get when they win something. Whatever, you know. He, I mean, they're just—they're. I can hear the 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 murmur of the crowd is is growing as he comes in. Um. His followers are praising him loudly, you know, for the miracles they'd seen. Um, they address him who as the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They considered him to be the Messiah. And you see that even more so when you look at, at, in the Matthew account, it says, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. What does that mean? Matthew passage ad, what does Hosanna mean? Save now, save now. Hosanna is save now, and the son of David. That's a messianic title. So they're shouting Hosanna to the son of David that. They're seeking salvation from the Messiah. Now, this is a rhetorical question at the end that I'm not going to give you an answer to. Was it salvation from sin that they were seeking or from Roman oppression? The passage doesn't really tell you what salvation they were seeking. But many in this crowd are going to turn on Jesus. And in just a few days, they're going to be yelling, crucify him. Because they expected something other than what he was going to give them, they expected the conquering king that would free them from the Roman oppression, not the suffering servant who gave his life so they could be clothed in righteousness. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. How did the Pharisees respond? they consider what the crowd is saying to be blasphemy. So they're going to respond. Um, They recognize that he's being praised as the Messiah, and, and he tells them to, hey, correct your followers. You know, rebuke them, which is a strong term. How does he reply to their request? He basically tells them the crowd is right. That if I rebuke these followers, the creation that I made will cry out. So he's confirming his position as the Messiah. He's not denying it at all. He fuels the opposition by telling him his creation's going to cry out. There is no hint in any of the language Jesus uses that he denies being the Messiah, he never denied it. Because he was the Messiah. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you, and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. There's a lot in these verses. So how do you compare the emotion of, of Jesus with that of the crowd? The crowd had been hollering for him, and what's he doing? He's weeping over the city. He's sad for them. He's grieved for them. You know, they're rejoicing for the coming of the Messiah, and he's sobbing for the city of Jerusalem. You see, God had sent... Numerous prophets to these people. The message of these prophets was very common, is consistent, calling on them to repent of their idolatry and trust in him. But unbelief was still the norm, and it grieved Jesus. He grieved for these people because of their unbelief despite the things that he had done, they failed to to trust in him. What awaited Jerusalem rather than peace? He said he, he wanted them to have peace. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. He wanted them to know how to have peace. How how do we have peace? I think the peace he's talking about is peace with the Father. He's not talking about worldly peace. He's talking about the spiritual peace that we can have with God the Father. That comes one way, right? It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. He wanted them to believe in him as the Messiah, and they failed. They failed. Belief would have brought them peace, but instead they faced destruction. Um, Jerusalem was surrounded by the army of, of Titus in AD 70, That's when the temple was destroyed. And numerous people, there was extensive killing at that time. It was a horrific time for the nation of Israel and the the city of Jerusalem. So when was the time of your visitation? Well, that's now that was for them, that was then that. Jesus was coming into the city. That was the, he was visiting the city. But they didn't know that it was the Messiah. They, they claimed they knew, but they're not going to recognize him. They're going to look for the conquering king when he came as a suffering servant. I think the unselfishness of Jesus at this point is is extremely noteworthy. He knew what was going to happen to him and yet he's grieving over their unbelief. He he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about the nation of Israel and And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So, what's the situation in the temple? The temple was turned into a place where you trade to get sacrifices. Yeah, so... So there's a couple of things that people came to the temple to do. One was to pay a temple tax, and the other was to offer a sacrificial, to offer an animal to be sacrificed for for their sin. So the Pharisees had made a rule. Um, By the way, the former high priest Annas was... Kind of he's like i 'm going to use the term from the movie he's like the godfather of the mafia of the Pharisees that I consider them like a mafia. they were just horrendous in what they were doing. Um, they required payment of this temple tax in a shekel, which would be. You know, their, their uh, currency. Well, if somebody else had a different currency, they charged an exorbitant fee to, to exchange it. It's kind of like the exchange rate that you would have in the airport. If you've ever traveled internationally, don't ever exchange money in the airport. It's, they charge you an exorbitant fee to exchange money there. Wait and go to the local bank. That's why Jesus then throw the table and make the exchanges of. Yes, that, because he they were robbing the people, and the the second thing that that they people came to the temple for was to offer the, a, a sacrificial animal. So what did they do there? Well. They charge a the fee to exchange animals. So no, it needs to be an unblemished animal. Yours has this little, little, you know, spot on it, or well, it's it's one leg is a little bit shorter, or whatever they came up with. And but we'll exchange this animal for yours. This one's unblemished, and but. And we'll only charge you this amount. So, But where, did, where had they gotten the animal that they exchanged? It was probably the previous person that came in. And then the next person, oh, well, no, your animal, that one's not going to work. But this one, I just happen to have this one that's unblemished. And you can see how it just keeps going, and they're just lining their pockets with money it's so sad well jesus recognizes exactly what's going on and the matthew and mark both record that he he flipped the tables on them he his righteous indignation was driven by his zeal for god's house he he told them This was to be a house of prayer, and you've made it a a den of robbers. All you're doing is is stealing from people. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could, for all the people were hanging on his words. So a little background here. So probably after he flipped the tables over, that would be toward the end of that day, and then he went back to to Bethany for the night. Well, then he came back each day to teach in the temple. So this is probably at least the next day and it said he's teaching there daily. You see two responses to his teaching. You know, the those that opposed him they're they're trying to catch him in what he says. They're looking for okay, is there something he said that we can declare as blasphemous and we can arrest him. But the common people, they're soaking it up. They're taking it in. So you see, the common people recognize him as a gifted teacher and we want to learn from him. But these opposition, they're, they're looking for a way actually to destroy him, to kill him. So what are some principles we've learned from this lesson? Jesus fulfilled messianic prophecies. He's not fulfilled all of them yet. There are some that remain to be fulfilled. But he will fulfill them when he comes back. We've talked a little about it before. Why why, why is he delaying his return? Why doesn't he come back now? I mean, we, we would love to have him come back now, right? But he's delaying so others can come to salvation, can come to faith in Christ. Um, as he approached the the cross and the suffering that he knew he was going to go through, he remained faithful to his Father. I'm going to fulfill. I mean, this is Jesus' mindset. I'm going to fulfill everything the Father told me to do. I'm going to be completely obedient to his will. That's his mindset. And then, thirdly, we see him defending truth. He confronted sinful practices very bluntly. So what are some application out of this? So what steps are you taking to remain faithful to the Father? What are things that we can do to build our trust in Jesus Christ? Well, he's given us his word, right? Right? So spending, spending time in the Word of God will help you to strengthen it. Because what does the Word of God tell us? Well, it, it gives us a clear understanding of God's character. Um, one summer I, I, I read through the Psalms, and every time I saw an attribute of God, I took note of it. And listed listed them out, and it was like seventy or eighty different attributes of God that came out of the Psalms. God's word is filled with descriptions of the Father. Another way is for us to to spend quality time in prayer. To and it. It's praising him for who he is, but it's also thanking him for what he's done and then lifting up our request to him. It's seeking wisdom from him when we face decisions. Uh, Too often, I'll pray about a situation when my decision was not the wisest. Instead of praying, before I made a decision, I, I'll go down a path and then, uh, God, would you help me fix this problem that I've created with my bad decision? Too often, that's the, the route I take. And then, how willing are you to stand for truth? It's becoming more and more um, contentious in our culture to stand for truth. Um, Folks call this the post. Christian culture now you know when I when I was a kid you know if you asked anyone just about if they were a Christian they typically would say yes although you know looking back i I question whether any of them really knew what it meant but now people are quite willing to say that I'm an atheist or an agnostic at least. I don't believe that. The Bible, they think it's a myth. We need to be willing to stand for truth. It can be challenging because you will get, you will face opposition when you do that. As Jesus did. Any questions or comments? I've kind of breezed through this. Let me close our time in prayer. Father, thank you for the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. He knew the the opposition, the suffering, the pain that he would experience. And yet he willingly took your wrath for sin on our behalf. Father, help us to be faithful to you as he was to trust in you, to seek to accomplish your perfect plan for our life, just like Jesus did. Father, help us to stand for truth, even in the face of of persecution. In our country, that persecution is, is so menial. It's not life-threatening, for the most part, but it was for for Jesus, and it is for others around the world. Help us to have that boldness to glorify you with our lives, and I thank you for uh, this truth you've you've revealed to us this morning, and I pray that it would transform us and glorify you, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you all.